We had a little light malfunction this morning, but we got it resolved. And we are excited to worship our amazing God in this house today. Amen. Yes, we give you praise, Jesus. Yes. Oh, yeah. rest in your presence and glorify your name in your house. Yes. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. That's right. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, He holds the victory. We proclaim this today. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely
Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, Father, we glorify your name forever. Welcome to church this morning. Would you welcome your neighbor into God's house today? Hey.
Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to First Service here this morning at Mount Rainier Christian Center. Welcome to everybody who's joining us online. We're thrilled that you're with us this morning. Apologize for that little bit of a technical glitch with the lights there at the beginning, but huge thanks to the guys in back for putting everything back together again. Amen? Yeah? Mm -hmm. It is great to be with you this morning. Somebody uh, mentioned, hey, Pastor, does it smell a little musty in here this morning? I said, well, I, I shower every week, you know, I don't know what, no, it's actually, we, we shampooed the carpets yesterday, so there's a little bit of a, of a lingering smell from that, it'll be gone right away, but the good news is that the carpets under you are clean, and the other part of the good news is that I do shower more often than once a week, in case you were wondering. Um, yeah. uh, gosh, uh, a little bit of a disappointment in that our picnic today uh, is rained out, but that's all right. We'll reschedule it. We'll make it happen. And uh, those same folks that took care of our lights will take care of that ring in the microphone here any minute. So uh, no stress about that. Um, you know, there's some, some really uh, special people with us this morning scattered across the three services this morning. And uh, we're going to put their names up on the screen here in just a second. But all of these folks made the very serious decision to become members of their church of Mount Rainier Christian Center this spring. And, and I want to ask those of you who are in first service, who have just become members, uh, would you stand for just a moment? We're not going to make you sing or dance or anything, but we want to recognize you and acknowledge you and welcome you into membership. Membership is a beautiful thing. It is a public, I love you, to the church of God. And Jesus sees it, delights in it, thrills to it. So welcome all morning to all of you who have become members. We're thrilled. And, and all of those folks are, are finding ways to plug in and become part, serving part of our body. So we're really excited about that going forward. Uh, this is also uh, graduation weekend. And this is that time when we all go, oh my goodness, did they graduate already? Have they already grown up so fast? And I want to invite you to turn your attention to the screen this morning. And let, let's take a moment just to reflect on what God does by his common everyday grace. Our kids grow up, they become adults, they go out into the world to serve the Lord. Give your attention to the screen. Let's celebrate our graduates this morning.
staff. Can we celebrate our graduating seniors this morning? Yeah. How does that happen so fast? I, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I can still feel my son's body and face and see him at every age growing up. And sometimes he's 26 now. I still do a double take when I see him and realize, was that the same little thing that dropped into my life and changed everything? Yeah, congratulations to those of you who are graduating and those who are with us online and graduating. We're just thrilled for you, thrilled with you, and thrilled by you. Uh, so good stuff, good stuff. Um, grab your Bible this morning, friends, if you would, and open it to Hosea. Once again, like I said last week, don't be shy about going to the table of contents in the front of your Bible so that you can find out what page Hosea is on. And we are going to continue this series called The Magnificent Seven, in which we've been meeting, for many of us, seven of what we call the minor prophets, parts of our Bible that many of us, maybe most of us, never venture into, uh, the prophets that God used to speak to his people and still uses to this day to speak to us about who he is, in, in, in some ways, uh, nobody speaks more deeply to us than the prophets do, and you're going you're gonna to hear some of that uh, this morning in our message. Last week, we met and learned from Habakkuk. This week, God wants to introduce us, if you haven't met him already, to Hosea, one of the most moving of all the prophets. It was Mark Twain who said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have him around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished by how much he had learned in seven years. <laughs> I mean, that's a familiar quote for some of us, but it captures something very real. Isn't it amazing how the way we think about people changes over time? Isn't it amazing how the way we, we perceive people changes over time? The graduates are an example of that. Once upon a time, these, these little tiny things utterly dependent on us for almost everything. And then graduation day comes and they have opinions and thoughts and feelings that are a, a surprise to us. And they, they teach us even as we have taught them. Isn't it amazing how the way we think about people changes over time. My uncle was a high school teacher in Oregon for almost 40 years, and he tells about how as he grew older, more and more often students, his students, would say to him, Hoops, that was his nickname, Hoops, you're almost 60 years old now. How can you relate to me when I'm 16? <laughs> and Paul would say, No, you don't understand. <laughs> You're only 16. I'm 16 and 20 and 26 and 36 and 46 and 56. I'm all those things. And he describes how a light would go on in their eyes as they looked at him for the first time and realized, oh, yeah, you were a teenager too. And in many ways, you still are that person on the inside. Paul talks about how that light in their eyes would come on when they realized that he was much more than they at first thought he was. Friends, when you and I discover that people are more than we thought they were, our relationship with them changes. Rod and me 
couldn't stand each other in high school. We went to the same school, but we're in very different groups of people. And then right after graduation, we discovered that each of us is much more than we thought. And that led to 36 years in counting of marriage. I remember a man in the church that we served in Coeur d'Alene. He was in his 90s, old, frail, slow-moving, slow to speak. And he didn't seem particularly special to me until the day we sat and talked at a church picnic and he shared with me how he was part of the first wave that landed at D-Day in Normandy. (laughs) And suddenly he became much more to me. I remember when we were young, a guy in our young marriage group many years ago didn't at first seem like someone special or someone that I wanted to have a friendship with, but a casual conversation in the foyer one day revealed that he has the same crazy, nerdy love for history that I do, and now Dave has been my best friend for over 30 years. Isn't it amazing how... People are more than we thought they were, and that as we discover that, our relationship with them changes. I say that for this reason. What if God is much more than you ever thought he was or is? And what if you are much more important to him than you ever thought you were? And what if you only know him right now like a 14-year-old knows his mom or dad or her mom or dad? What if you only know a little about him and there's so much more to do? Hosea is composed around a brilliant promise from God that goes like this. You find it in chapter 2, verse 16. We're going to go back to chapter 1, but you find it in chapter 2, verse 16. And here's the promise. God says to Israel, God says to us, In that day, declares the Lord, You will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my betrothed one, my loved one, the lover of my soul. You will call me my husband. You will no longer merely call me my master. And Hosea is all about discovering that more of God that you didn't know was there. Because when you do, it changes your whole relationship with him. God wants us to feel the difference between master and husband. Between king and father. Between the lover of my soul and the administrative head of creation. In that day, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Hosea may be the most emotional of the prophets, and for good reason. To help him and all of Israel know who God is, Hosea goes through a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking ordeal of being betrayed by his spouse. But it leads to the discovery that turned him from a religious man into a lover of God. And there's a world of difference between those two things. So we're going to take a slight detour before we start in Hosea. We're going to jump over to Matthew 22. Then we're going to come back to Hosea and finish together because I want to set the table for what God is talking about in Hosea. Maybe the hardest commandment 
in the Bible to live out is the one that matters the most. Man came to Jesus, Matthew tells us in chapter 22, verse 36, and he asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the most important aspect of, of, of religion, of our relationship with our maker? What is the greatest, the most significant, most important commandment in the law? Now, smart people ask questions of God. Dumb people don't. Jesus says everyone who seeks finds. And the implication is that those who don't, don't. This man is someone who asks questions of God. I hope that you are. He hopes that you are. John Artberg said memorably that doubt is the first step to faith because it asks questions. This is the perfect question because it recognizes that some things are more important than other things. And everyone can't do everything all the time. We are limited. We need priorities. We need to know what matters most or we can't live well. We can't know God deeply. you got lots of things going on around your house, but only enough time to do some of them, and so you choose among them. Choosing wisely is the secret of a satisfying life. I'll always remember reading a little pamphlet when I was in college that was handed out to us as Bible college students. It was called The Tyranny of the Urgent. It was just a couple of pages, but it talked about how what is urgent can crowd out what is important in our lives. And we have to be proactive about saying, God, I want to do the important things, not just the urgent things. And this man is coming from that place. What's the most important commandment in all of the law? And Jesus' answer, frankly, frustrates lots of people, most of whom won't admit it. Here's what he says. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, all of God's revelation of himself, all of our potential for relationship with him, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And friends, can I say this gently? There is maybe nothing Jesus said that is lied about more than this. How do you love God? I mean... It's not hard to figure out how to love your wife. Do what she says, right? Amen? Just do what you're told, right? And it works. It's not hard to figure out how to love your kids. It comes from your instinct. It comes from your guts. It's not hard to figure out how to love your friends or even your dog or, though it pains me to say it, your cat. But how do we love God? Seriously. When, when we hear that, very often we become immediately confused. God, how do I love you? On the one hand, loving God feels like being asked to buy a Christmas present for Jeff Bezos. I mean, what can you get him that's going to mean anything? He's already got everything. And on the other hand, sometimes the command to love God feels like you're being ordered to feel something. And all of us know that what we feel, we don't always control. We can't order ourselves to feel something. So what does it mean to love God? More significantly, what does it mean to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Hearing this command, some people try to pretend that love is just excitement or obedience or submission. 
even though our souls know that love is more than that. But we can't just go for shortcuts on this stuff because Jesus said it's the most important thing. If we cut corners here, we're undermining the whole deal. If you make a vegetarian hamburger, what's the point? You failed at the whole deal here, right? You go to the barbecue and have a vegetarian burger, you just need to pray more because you're missing the point, right? But seriously, seriously, what we often do is we, we substitute excitement or some kind of teeth-gritting submission, or we sometimes try to substitute the most intoxicating thing of all, mere obedience, for love for God. And we do that because we're confused. We say, I don't know how I can love God. Some of these substitutes, in fact, all of them, are indeed ingredients in the recipe for love. That's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, this is love for God to obey His commandments. But if we think that's the end of the story, we're wrong. Do you want your spouse merely to obey you? <laughs> is that all you're looking for from them? Or are you looking for something more? Do you want your kids just to obey you? I mean, sometimes it feels like if we get that far, we could at least make it. But you want more than that. You really do, especially as they get older. So what is that more? All right, with this in mind, we turn to Hosea. Now, understand a little bit about the structure of Hosea. Chapters 1 to 3 are a story, a story of an event that happened. And then the rest of it is poetry and songs and God speaking to Hosea about what happened in chapters 1 to 3. And, and here's really the crux of the story, chapter 1, beginning with verse 2. When the Lord God began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, imagine God saying this to you. The Lord said to him, go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. In other words, Hosea, I want you to take to yourself a wife who is going to betray you. Scholars debate about whether Gomer had already betrayed him and God was calling him back. The point's the same either way. Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. In other words, kids that she had by somebody else. Because the land, Israel, is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she bore him a son. In fact, she bore him several. Imagine what you would feel like in that moment. And some of us would say, God, why would you ask Hosea to do that? And the answer is because God wanted to be so close to Hosea that Hosea understood what God feels. And so God tells Hosea, I want you to do this so that you can know what I feel. The land is guilty not merely of not being religious enough, of not doing enough spiritual stuff. The land is guilty of adultery against me, of betraying me personally, of betraying a covenant of love. Imagine Hosea's shock when God asks of him. It's not hard to imagine. What would you feel? But again, God asked him to do this because God wanted him to know how he feels. Because when we begin to wonder how someone else feels, they start to become more to us. Have you ever asked yourself, God, what do you feel 
Most of us just skip right past that. We say, oh, God, you know, you're so great. You probably don't feel anything that really matters or it's beyond me. Like H.G. Wells said, uh, you know, no, God, I'd sooner open my mouth and try to swallow the Milky Way. And in so doing, he escaped the reality of the question. God, what do you feel? God wanted Hosea to understand that because when we wonder what someone feels, they start to become more to us. I remember a very difficult day in our parenting journey with our teenage son. He was around 16, somewhere in there. And it was just one of those really rough, difficult days. And in the midst of a confrontation in which there were tears on both sides, Isaiah said something to me I never forgot. I have never forgotten. He said, Dad, I just can't be like you. And in that moment, what we were having a confrontation about went from an issue of right and wrong to an issue of how he was feeling and what he was feeling. And that reality changed our relationship. That reality gave me insights I didn't have before. I never even knew he was trying to equal me or whatever. But after that moment, I went away understanding what he was feeling in so many ways. This is what God wants Hosea to grasp. Now, as the story goes, sure enough, Gomer's unfaithful to Hosea. She even goes so far as to sell herself into slavery to another man, to several men, in fact. But after that happens in chapter 3, here's what God says to his prophet. He says, Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, go show your love to your wife again. Though she's loved by another, though she is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, even though they turn to other gods. There's an ocean of pain in that sentence. So Hosea says, I bought her back. I redeemed her for 15 shekels of silver. And I told her, you are to live with me many days. This isn't short term. This isn't just a rehab project. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, even though you have. And I will live with you. There's a, a weight of meaning in the Hebrew hard to grasp in the English. He's saying, I will draw near to you again. I will share my life with you again. Hosea is called by God to bring her back in spite of her sins. Many of us, most of us, would frankly say at this point, man, you know, this, this is a broken relationship. And to be fair, God says there's so much pain associated with a moment like this that he says where there's been marital unfaithfulness, divorce is okay. But in this case with Hosea, God's doing more than just what's necessary. He wants Hosea to understand what he feels. He wants Israel to understand what he feels. He wants you and me to understand what he feels when we chase everything else, when we aim for and focus on everything else more than we do our relationship with him. God calls Hosea to pay the price to redeem her. God calls Hosea to restore intimacy with her, not just to agree to be under the same roof, but to rebuild that love. Why would God do this? Well, if you have to ask that question, you're not ready for the answer. Love does things like this. Love loves even when it's rejected. That's the nature of love. 
if you can forgive me for just a moment to use a little sanctified imagination here, but God is a lot like Forrest Gump with Jenny. <laughs> she can't break his love. No matter how many times she turns away, no matter how many times she ignores him, no matter how many times she puts others ahead of him, his love for her just won't change. And God wants the prophet Hosea to grasp this, to know what he feels. He wants Israel to know. He wants you and me to know. Because when we know what someone feels, they become more to us. And the relationship grows. God wants Hosea and Israel to understand that his love isn't administrative or procedural. It's not some cosmic machinery or impersonal good guy routine. God loves his people personally like a good husband loves his wife, like a good parent loves her child, like a good friend loves a best friend. And when you love someone, it makes you vulnerable to them. Lots of people want to love without vulnerability, but it's like trying to swim without getting wet. You can't do it. Other people want, to, want love itself to be tame and safe, but real love can't. It risks itself. The love God is calling Hosea to isn't some Hallmark Channel fantasy. It's gritty and tough and real. It goes day by day. It persists. It won't quit. It's relentless. It's willing to suffer. And God has a specific purpose in this live action parable that he works out through Hosea. He wants Israel to know maybe the hardest thing for an adulterous spouse to know. And that is that God still wants them. The first lie the devil will tell you when you fail is that God doesn't want you anymore. The second lie you will tell yourself is that it's a matter of whether you can forgive yourself or not. Both are lies. The reality is whether God wants you. And the prophet Hosea is God's shout to us that he wants us despite our failures. Listen to how he reacts to Israel's adultery. Chapter 2, verses 14 and following. This is what God says. Having, having defined Israel's vile adultery, having called it what it is, Here's how he reacts. He betrays his feelings again. He says, therefore, in other words, because of her failure, because of her adultery, I am now going to allure her, to woo her, to romance her, to seek her. I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. That's very significant. Hang on, I'll explain. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In other words, there she will rediscover her first love. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. I wonder how many of us sitting here today have assumed that to call God our master is the ballgame. Jesus said it isn't. He said, no, no, that's not, that's not all I'm looking for. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, to feel for him what he feels for you. And that happens when you begin to understand what he feels for you. Notice what God says. He says, I am now going to allure her. God responds to Israel's failure by seeking her. That's how he responds to your failure. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the Bible says, God came seeking them. Irregardless. 
Just as he had come every other day up until that moment, he continued to come. The question is never whether God's heart towards us changes. The question is whether our heart towards him changes. God, through Hosea, says, I'm going to allure her. She's guilty of the vilest adultery, but I'm going to seek to win her back. And then he says something hard for us as contemporaries to understand. He says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. What does that mean? Well, if you do a little Bible study, you'll find out that the Valley of Achor in Joshua is the place where Israel experienced her first and greatest failure in the Promised Land. She was defeated because she was arrogant and proud, and she went up to battle when God told her not to. She was defeated. A lot of people died. It was a real tragedy. And God says, I'm going to take that failure. You know, Israel, the worst one in your past. And I'm going to flip the script on it so that it becomes a door of hope. I'm going to take your worst failure and turn it around and make it the foundation for the relationship that we're going to have going forward. Imagine if your worst failure was turned around and became the source of your greatest joy. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Isaiah tells us he gives us beauty for ashes. Same idea. You know, Rhonda and I, uh, we, we weren't, uh, you know, didn't have much regard for each other in high school. Right after high school, we met, and that led to our relationship. But part of the story is that the night that we met was a night that we were both stood up by somebody else we were supposed to be dating. <laughs> so we both showed up at this thing. My date didn't show up. Hers didn't, and we found each other. God says, I'm going to do something like that in your worst failure. And then he says, you will call me my husband you will no longer call me my master. In other words, I will become to you more than just God in the sky. I will become your lover, your best friend. Yeah, that's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 15 when he said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. That's what he said to his disciples. He says, we're aiming for more than just doing what we're told because we know each other. A servant doesn't know his master's business, but now you do. This is what Israel didn't know about God, and Hosea is filled with expressions of God's heart for his people in their struggle. Chapter 1, verse 10, he says to them, in the place where it was said to you, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. In other words, again, I'm going to turn your failure around. Chapter 11, verse 8 just breaks your heart, especially if we don't have time to get into the context, but God says this, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? God portrays himself as helpless, like a parent with a drug-addicted teenager. I can't give up on you because you matter too much to me. God says in that same passage, chapter 11, verses 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, to the false gods. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. In other words, God says, I feel about you like a father, like a mother feels about their kids. That's how he feels about you and me. He feels it. It's not just words on a page. It's not just a slogan. It's not a motto. It's not a sales agenda. He feels this. He says, Greg, I remember when you pooped your diaper every day. I brought your mom along to clean that up. Greg, I remember in middle school when you were just a train wreck of emotions and insecurities and I walked with you through every one of those days, and so on, and so on. 
God portrays himself as a father. You know, friends, if I can be personal with you, the first time I read Hosea, I was challenged by a a Christian musician at a concert to encounter the minor prophets. I was just maybe a year old in the Lord, a year and a half. I hadn't got to that part of my Bible. And I was challenged at a concert. So I worked at the Naval Hospital over in Bremerton, and I I set aside my lunch hours for a couple weeks. I said, I'm going to go down to the chapel, you know, the hospital chapel. I go down there at lunchtime, and I'm going to read the minor prophets. And it was the day that I sat there reading Hosea that for the first time, I cried over how God feels. I'll never forget it. I sat there and went, oh my goodness, God, I had no idea this was how you feel. How you feel about me. In that little chapel, God became more to me than a master. He became a husband, became a best friend. And suddenly now, love for God's a real thing. And in the same way, God wants you to know, he wants you to feel how he feels about you. Because when we begin to discover that, the relationship changes. You've, you've often heard me, we're almost done this morning, you've often heard me talk about the difference between being right and being good. Too many of God's people care only about being right and never understand the difference between being right and being good. God could have content, contented himself in this Hosea parable with being right, but he didn't. Instead, he went to the cross and suffered for us. And he knew that grace and truth go together in the end. And like John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Back at the beginning, in chapter 1, God says, the land is guilty of the vilest adultery. (laughs) Now, to say that to someone doesn't sound like love at first, but it is. Love tells the truth. It holds us accountable. It calls us on the carpet when we're wrong. It can't ignore sin. Love can't, even as it addresses sin with mercy. I came across a story in the Seattle Times this week under the category of Eric's heroes, and it has to do with the redemption of a woman named Ginny Burton. Now, we're going to throw her picture up on the screen here. And on the left-hand side, you can see Ginny after 20 years of heroin addiction, petty crime, adultery, every kind of abuse. She was at bottom. And she describes in the story the day that she knew she was going to prison for an extended length of time. She was arrested in the midst of a heroin deal on the streets of Seattle. She was both dealing and using. And the police caught her, and she knew this was... She had been to court. She'd had all the mercies. This was it. She was going to prison. And she said, when they cuffed me and put me in the back of the car, for the first time in my life, I knew I was safe. I'd been caught. There was no getting away. There was no escaping. There was no talking my way out of this. There was no lying my way out of this. There's no manipulating my way out of this. She said, I never felt more safe than the moment when I was handcuffed in the back of that police car. Another beautiful end of the story. It's in prison. She got to know God. She turned her entire life around. And the other picture is her about eight years later graduating with a college degree. Look at the difference. That difference is what God does for us. 
when we let him call us out there on the carpet and then we understand how he feels about us when he's doing it. God's love for you will always tell the truth about your sins in order to save you from them. Don't be afraid of the truth about your sins. Plato said this, and it's memorable. He said, we can easily forgive a child who's afraid of the dark, but the real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. Jesus says, I am the light. He says, I want to come into your life, not just to check some boxes and get some religious stuff done. I want to come into your life so you can know what I feel about you, so you can discover who I am, so that I can turn you from the ways that are destroying you. (laughs) And that happens when you understand how I feel. At least once every year, I come back to my favorite gospel story. It's found in Luke 7. It's where we finish. The Bible says one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to his house, reclined at his table, and a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, a gomer, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she brought a jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wipe them with her hair, kiss them, and pour perfume on them. This is not a woman who has trouble understanding what love really is. She's pouring it out. Some people live like this. They're all around us. For them, God isn't just an idea or a higher power or a master. He is their true love. He is the one they love. Other people are different, like Simon. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he, being who he is, canceled the debts of both. Now, Jesus asked, which of them will love him more? Neither had money to pay him back. Which will love him more? Simon gave the right answer. Well, the one who was forgiven the most. And then Jesus said, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's been forgiven little loves little. God loves you so much that he won't, he can't ignore your sin. So he calls you on it. And maybe he's calling you on it right here and right now. If he is, let him. Let him. You will never feel more safe than when you let him. Because who he is, is the God who redeems, who rescues, who loves you. I know a man who shares with me the story of picking up his drug-addicted son by the side of the road just outside of Sumner. And the man says, Pastor Greg, I never want to forget that moment. I never want to forget that moment. Because that moment is who I am. It defines who I am in my relationship to my son. And it's who God is for you and me. Once you know how he feels, loving him ceases to be a problem. (laughs) Once you know how he feels, you'll find ways to love him. They'll be all over the place. They're in every day. They're in every moment. They're in every relationship. And that's the most important thing. That's what Hosea is all about. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. 
Father God, we come to you this morning and, and we confess that it's too rare that we ask ourselves, how are you feeling? That far too little do we consider how you're feeling as we make our choices, as we go through our lives. God, sometimes we just act like you don't feel anything, like you're just the great machine in the sky. And through Hosea, you reveal to us that that is not true. And that you desire for us to call you my husband, not just my master. So God, we pray that you show us how to ask, how are you feeling, God? We pray that that question would move to the front of our lives. God, how are you feeling about this situation? How are you feeling about that person? How are you feeling about me? Maybe as we sit here this morning, God's calling you out that you're guilty of sins and he's putting his finger on them in this moment. Know this. He's doing it to save you. He's doing this to make you another Ginny Burton to rescue you and to restore your life. He's doing it so that you will know how he feels about you. That he calls you son, daughter. And that the only thing that can stop that is your refusal to receive it. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, you can right here and right now. You can say to God, yes, God, I, I need to be rescued from my sins. God, I see that you love me. I didn't know that. You can do that in this moment. He's here to, to hear your heart. Just tell him. Let him take you from here in the back seat of his police cruiser. And you'll never regret it. God, we thank you for your word. Send us out into the world knowing what Hosea discovered. What you feel for us. We pray for that and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? Yeah. Yeah. Our relationship with someone grows. As soon as we ask ourselves, what are you feeling? Hosea invites us to do that with our God. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God, tell someone you love him. Have a great afternoon.